Today on IFS Talks, we're speaking with Stephanie Mitchell. Stephanie Mitchell is a psychotherapist, trainer, group therapist, and supervisor working in private practice in Adelaide, South Australia. Stephanie specializes in working with complex trauma and experiences which often get labeled as mental illness. She's a passionate advocate for social change towards non-pathologizing and compassionate approaches to mental health. Most important to Stephanie's work as a therapist is her own healing journey from significant childhood trauma. Believing that a therapist can only take a client as far as they themselves have traveled, Stephanie has undertaken a deep dive into the inner world of her own parts. Around her personal experience, she states, my healing work with an IFS practitioner has offered me a profoundly life-changing experience, something that almost a decade of work with other therapy models has not offered me. Stephanie, thank you so much for being here with us today on IFS Talks. We're really looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you so much, Tisha, and thanks, Annabelle, for having me here. I'm really excited. Thanks much, Stephanie, for willing to sit with us. What parts come up today during your bio? Yeah, so, yeah, the first part that comes up for me is just, I think, the parts of me who really feel that um, how important it has been that my healing journey has informed my work and is really such an important part of what I bring to my clients. And, um, you know, I don't have a lot of credentials. I wasn't, I didn't even finish high school. So um, while I am in a master's program now, I'm, I'm not an academic. So for me, things that feel like enrich the work that I do um, have to do with a lot of um, the healing journey and that I've been on. So that was really nice to listen to. And also just the parts of me who are really strong activists, I think I had parts who felt really proud listening to that piece. What was it about um, your life or your, your experiences through life that brought you into becoming a mental health counsellor? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, it's interesting. I I actually started out in mental health as a what in Australia we call call a peer worker. It might be called that internationally as well. I'm not sure. And um, what that means is really it's just somebody who identifies as having a lived experience of sort of emotional distress, or um, some people identify with labels and various things, but. Um, I had come, what had happened was I actually had chosen to homeschool my children and I'd been home with them for, oh gosh, about 15 years. And when I was ready to resume the workforce, um, I had some really devastating things happen in my external life that caused me to have um, a kind of breakdown of sorts and my parts call call that time, sort of the experience of that really a... Um, PTSD crisis is how it felt. I felt very flooded by my parts and um, overwhelmed by feeling very back in those old experiences of my childhood. And I came out of that experience um, with, I think I'd always believed I was pretty broken, but I came out with a very reinforced sense of my brokenness. So then thinking of going back into the workforce, um, I felt I didn't have much to offer and a friend of mine had told me about this thing called peer work 
So that's, I just really went in to finding a job in mental health services as one of the broken people that I was going to hang out with all day and every day. And it was just such a beautiful gift, though, to have that happen and to have the opportunity to do that. And then what surprised me the most was that my workplaces gave me this lovely feedback that I had a lot to offer. And one of the places that I worked for in the early days suggested I get some training and asked me what I'd like to do. And I said I'd always wanted to be a counsellor but didn't really think that I could. And they said, oh, we'd absolutely love to train you in that. And very quickly I got to find that I had some skills. Well, very quickly. <laughs> it took some time <laughs> to gain the confidence. Yeah. And why this special interest of yours in this kind of experience, the non-ordinary states? I, I have never been psychotic or... Um, you know, like self-harmed or doing, done, you know, like had all those kind of experiences. But what I have had is when I was a child, I was really told I was too much. Mm. That was such a strong message to me. Um, so when I was hanging out with all these people who really society tells is too much, you know, their experiences are too much, their parts are too much, I became really passionate about making that be different. I just, um, all my parts got so angry about that. And, um, you know, what I have had as well is, well, I haven't maybe had those really extreme experiences. I have had really terrifying times when my parts um, have flooded me so much that um, I have felt like I can barely function. So I felt I also had a rapport with the people I was sitting every day with and being with. Um, the other reason that I've ended up in this place is because when I started, so I started out as the peer worker and I was hanging out and doing a lot of public education as well as being with people who are using services and um, and consulting, you know, with various organisations and um, I helped write a draft um, policy um, a proposal for the reform of the Mental Health Act in, oh gosh, whenever it was, about four years ago. Um, so I was very passionately activist in that part over the work but the thing that really brought me even deeper into this work therapeutically with people having those ex sort of non-ordinary experiences was um, when I started as a counsellor I was really lucky to get a job at an agency where the most the two things happened the face-to-face -face counselling I did most of my clients were people who were having experiences that ended up with them being labelled with borderline personality disorder and um, I had really good supervisor and I just felt so I just felt so I could understand these people and it was so lovely to be sitting with people who were in distress and knowing they felt heard sometimes for the first time after many years in health service mm -hmm. and then the other thing I was given an opportunity to do was co-lead a hearing voices group oh yeah, yeah. so I really I suppose what I call cut my teeth therapeutically with this group of people and found that I found it really easy and um, maybe because I'd had really big experiences that were frightening to me when they sat in the room with me with that level of feeling overwhelmed and afraid and things, um, I was pretty um, steady about the whole thing 
I just knew if I could be there with them, it would be easier than if I felt overwhelmed by that. So now for how long have you been working with these states? Uh, good question. I think about nine years. Yeah. So you came to IFS as a client or how did you come to uh, begin to work with an IFS practitioner and what was it like to begin to have that different experience that that we talked about in your bio of you know, 10 years of a certain type of therapy and then diving into the deep inner work with your parts yeah wow so again I was a therapist and I was I love my work but I just was so frustrated that I just felt it wasn't getting to the core of it my clients loved being with me but they were just not really finding I wasn't finding I, I could I felt I was giving them enough and was looking for another therapy to train in and um, looked into a few different things and eventually found IFS and it just resonated with me and I went oh I need this for me <laughs> and so I was really fortunate to um, I reached out to a lot of different people and I ended up um, making contact with Michelle Glass and so for me <laughs> she's just been um, the experience of IFS as well as you know being with Michelle has really been such a profoundly different experience I don't know how to quantify that so let me just pause a second I think what what felt like in the past was that I was always slightly shamed in the in the client role I felt that the therapist was making it sound like it was so easy to you know be able to change or bring some calmness to my experience or understand my trauma in a way that would resolve it and and it was just such a frustrating endeavor all the time where I felt always um, mildly pathologized even though the therapist might be very caring and what I really love about IFS is that there is such an open space to um, to know, oh, our parts absolutely have no choice but to do this right now because of their burdens and because of their beliefs and all they're carrying. And that was just, just helped me just feel so much um, differently inside of my skin. And then the second piece obviously is this getting to know parts and um, feeling the experience of, you know, I have a friend called Melanie um, in the IFS community and she calls it what the IFS process where we get to know our parts more, the um, sort of emotional intimacy of our parts. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I really love that idea that, that really where um, there's a deliciousness, you know, the reason that we want to be in intimate relationships is there's a deliciousness to that, right? Of the connection, yes. Yeah. So, so why wouldn't we want that with parts of us who have been working so bloody hard for us and also parts of us who are so wounded? So I think that has been the really transformational piece, um, getting a sense of love for my, in our language, parts, but, you know, in my previous language, my, just my experience. Yeah. So it sounds like um, it's about the internal relationships, maybe alongside the unburdening. 
but just the the approach to your own experience has shifted through yeah it. and it's just so much incredible like really the first time I've probably felt unconditionally accepted by a therapist beautiful wow yeah so Stephanie how do you see these psychotic states you know Annabelle I I feel like there are so many theories out there and I feel like I, I have a kind of Stephanie Mitchell theory that's a conglomeration of not only things I've read but also the things that I've gleaned from my experiences of being with people. And um, what's fascinating to me is I've only had my experiences, right? I've only sat with the people I've sat with and there's so many experiences out there and so... Um, the longer I sit with people, the, like you would know, the longer you sit, the more we learn. I know that sounds cliched, but recently I had a client who very long time ago had had an experience of what would be called mania and she was hospitalized and detained and it was extremely traumatic for her. And as we were unpacking that, since then she's that's never happened since. Um, so she was hospitalized, detained, held down and forcibly you know injected and very frightened and came out of hospital and so traumatic yeah. stayed on meds until eventually she found a relationship where she felt safe enough and was able to then move on with her life and has never had that experience but as we unpacked it it really was this um sinking into knowing what actually was going on in that early experience was what i would call a spiritual awakening mm-hmm. It was just completely mismanaged by the people around her. And it was a lost gift, actually. She lost something back then that her parts still want her to know. And so for me, six months ago, I couldn't have told you the depth of that. I know the theories of spiritual emergence. I've read the books. But to be sitting with a client who has had that experience. So when you ask what is my what are my thoughts on psychosis, I'm like, well, I can give you some thoughts on what I've found so far <laughs> and maybe in six months I'll have extra things so um of course if it's okay to give you a little synopsis because I do teach this um I think that there's a, a mixture of things I think that it's related to trauma and it doesn't matter whether it's little t trauma big t trauma like how do you even differentiate those things but um but just to say that it is totally related to life experiences and that um, it's parts who are really desperately needing to get someone's attention and parts inside, this is the big conflict, okay, it's it's characterised by enormous internal conflict, um, parts who absolutely do not want the person to know something. So parts needing something to be known and needing something not to be known. So using your example, just to to elaborate a little bit, if you were to meet with that client in the moment of her mania, how would you approach her system differently than the hospitalization, the injections, the pathologizing? It's really, I was thinking a little bit about this because I have parts who always really want to... Um, operationalize how this work's done like chunk 
get down. When, when I first started out in therapy, I said to my supervisor, yeah, 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 whatever. Just how do you actually do it in the room? What does it look like in the room? And so I was thinking through some of these things, you know, um, about what would I actually do with someone who came in who might be deemed to be manic? I think that the most important pieces are really being curious and also being thoroughly unafraid. The worst thing you can do for someone who is in a state of, I believe non-ordinary states, um, really frightening for a person. When I speak to people about those experiences, they tell me they're the most terrifying things that they've ever experienced. Mania has a different edge to it, okay? It also has some euphoria. But just to talk more broadly about these experiences can be frightening. So as a as a person sitting with someone who's going through that, I'm mostly wanting to really really be open to their experience. I really wanted this talk to be called All Experiences Are Welcome, not just all parts, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and that's how I feel is um, to be open to the experience, to bring a lot of curiosity. Tell me what that's like. Tell me your knowings. Like a person in that elevated experience um, has some deep knowings and they don't know how to harness it and other parts of them are afraid of it. So we give permission. Just, I mean, can I say something? I have this part who really, really wants to tell people. It's not a special group of therapists that work with these people. Anyone can do it because their work is exactly the same. So do you believe we can do IFS therapy uh, with any client, even if it's flagrantly psychotic one? Um, Well, it depends what you call IFS. You know, when I spoke to Dick Schwartz in um, 2019 in Italy, he said you can't do IFS with a flagrantly psychotic person. And at the time I was like, yes, you can. And I thought, well, if he's talking about the steps, you know, like, Protocol. Going through the protocol, then of course you can't <laughs> because the person, you know, um, this is the other thing I haven't told you about my idea of this is that I really honestly believe it's about fear of relationship. Okay. The person desperately needing someone in that moment of fear and being very, very afraid of relationship. So what we do in IFS or any work is this kind of moving towards in a way that's I'm here, I'm curious, I'm unafraid, I'm checking with me and my parts all the time and at the same time being very attuned to, oh, something happened between the two of us just now and I actually need to move back a little bit and it's what I call kind of like a this dance where we um, move towards the person until they kind of let us know that that doesn't feel so good. And then we recalibrate and pull back. And then at that point, they feel safer. Okay. So, you know, you can't do necessarily, at least in the early stages, the six Fs, find that in your body, focus on that. How do you feel towards? But you can do a lot of, um, yeah, well, what is that like? You are offering micro doses of relationship? Yeah. <laughs> like that. I like that. Microdoses of relationship. Yeah, that's a great way to put that on a ball. Like the moving into relationship, moving back when it feels too scary. Yeah.
your experience, how does the IFS protocol works with this client and what adaptations are needed? So definitely it can be used. When I, when I teach it, I teach some adaptations, like when we do direct access, um, we might set it up with extra safety. So we might pre-formulate the questions with one of the main protectors or, um, you know, the person who often is identifying themselves as, you know, me, I'm Stephanie, and it's a part, it's not self. Yeah. Um, but the part who brings them to therapy maybe is like, I really want to understand why this critic just really beats me up so much. And we might say, what do you want to ask? And we'd have those decided together and and then we do the direct access with the part, but in a way that is um, is very, it's a bit, little bit, tiny bit more formulaic, for instance. But this is, I would also say, this is in the early, early stages of safety building. Okay. Once there's enough safety building in the relationship, you can do a lot more IFS that just looks like ordinary IFS. Do you believe psychotic parts, if there are psychotic parts, they are dissociative ones? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And there is more and more and more people. And I was about to say evidence, but I don't know if there's actual research yet. There are more and more people in the hearing voices movement and people working with these non-ordinary states internationally who are talking about the dissociative nature of, of um, you know, hearing voices, um, seeing visions, having bodily, you know, sensations. Um, I used to work with a man who had a an entity that he called him Shadow Man and he, Shadow Man would come and wake him at night and he could feel him jumping on the bed. It was a very frightening experience for him. So whatever that experience is, um, that this, it's a dissociative experience and I would say a part is trying to protect him in some way or another, right? <laughs> yeah. And did it, did like for this client, for example, did he begin to get into self to shadow man relationship? No. Well, interestingly, that particular client I was seeing before I started using IFS, but what was really fascinating is the safety of the therapeutic relationship over the course of me um, really just, all, all I would do is really bring a lot of curiosity and reflection but only reflection the, in this work, what's really important is, oh, I'm hearing this. And when that's too scary, we just pull back and we just let it go for now. And, and so I would bring, I would be really curious and I would reflect back and I would listen. And um, I, I, it's so hard to quantify what actually works. But anyway, he went to this, he got to this place where Shadow Man just left. And he actually had a door um, that was, had a painting. And I said to him one day, um, where's the door? And he goes, oh, I just popped it outside. Like this is a huge, significant thing. And that is one thing I would say to you, and this is a Stephanie theory. I'm not sure if anyone in this field agrees with me, but um, I have this theory that when we're working with these non-ordinary states, we often see 
tangible changes in a person's life before we see what we might quote unquote call insight. So he might have not really gotten to a place where he understood his parts or why they did that, but he could he also then completely went from being a hoarder to having his house clean. So just these big, big shifts. I'm curious a little bit about the like the spiritual awakening aspect in terms of like the function of the parts that are showing up so extremely. Yeah, this is so fascinating to me. And I honestly feel ill-equipped to speak to you about this because I'm not an expert in spiritual awakening or, or emergence or emergency. Um, what I am beginning to understand about it is that um, there is actually something the person is opening up to and there is an interplay between the spiritual and parts. And I don't fully understand that yet, but um, is again, this is just my formulation. <laughs> um, I'd be really curious to have a spiritual emotions person um, say their piece on that. But my formulation is that um, the person is going through a deep inner transformational experience and there are some sort of guides or something or something that they become aware of that is much, much larger than themselves. And the integration of the internal shift and the, this feeling into the spiritual is just such a difficult passage to navigate because it's kind of giving up everything you used to know and, and were sure of. But for something that feels so important and, and amazing but is frightening, and so there, there are parts who are wanting that shift and change, and I would say the people that I've worked with, the spiritual emergency comes at a point when something significant in their life changes the death of a significant loved one or the end of a significant relationship or something. So this is what I mean. There's an interplay between what I do think is the spiritual and something that is very much um, parts related. And I, I don't know enough about it. I really appreciate how you put that. Yeah. Stephanie. We know that usually conceptualizations of mental illness reduces clinicians' empathy oh, yeah. towards their patients, leading to more dehumanization yeah. of his patients. So for you, psychosis is both a traumagenic condition and an, an illness, or more any one of them? Let me tell you, I have parts who have a real soapbox about the idea of particularly, I mean, of course, mental illness. So um, I have parts who very much don't believe in the construct of mental illness as as anything, like it just doesn't exist <laughs> um, as a fixed state. You know, people can have people can have very difficult, difficult experiences and then be fine. And so how do we distinguish that that person is that now? Do you know they have a new category these days called a borderline episode? So if you are distressed enough that you are suicidal and beside yourself and very, you know, histrionic or whatever you want to call it in all those labels, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, now, we now sort of say, oh, well, if it passes, then you had a borderline episode. It's like, oh, my gosh, seriously. So I think for me there is the piece about the 
the labels. But what is so important to me is there is still a school of thought. <laughs> and this is where I, my parts do get on this soapbox. There is still a school of thought that really says, okay, we might move away from labels, but we still really believe in the, um, the genetic component of mental illness. And I'm like, first of all, that is a nonsense because how can you say you're moving away from the labels of mental illness when you're still talking about this being something that's predisposed and whatever? Yeah. So in that way, I probably do f disagree with Dick. He believes there's something um, genetic. There's absolutely no genetic markers, none, and they've been searching for them for like mm -hmm. 50 years. Mm -hmm. But more broadly, you know, does it run in families? I have parts who think, does it run in families? Maybe because of environment. Is there any proof it's genetic? I'm, the jury's out for me. And, you know, Dick would say there's a predisposition parts can push the button for. And I'm like, yeah, well, the reason my parts don't want to even concede to that possibility, so I'm just owning this is very parts-led, what I'm about to say to you, okay, is from myself I'm totally willing to be wrong about this and I and I just honestly don't know, but my parts feel that quote that you just referenced about um, dehumanization. The reason that my parts don't really want to concede or be open to that idea is because the research that you know, there's two really big research projects: one by Vaez in 2017, and one by Lobowitz um, and Arns in 2014, that actually showed that. When healthcare professionals <laughs> believe a person has a biogenetic condition, yeah. they are much more likely to actually see the person as not the same as them, actually to the point of this person is not human like me exactly. and are much more likely and willing to take a step towards dehumanising behaviours, which, you know, if we think about it, not something you want your loved one exposed to or subject to, and it reduces the empathy of clinicians towards their patients. That's what those two studies explicitly found. And I, so I'm like, oh, I'm not willing to conceive that it's biological. And that is, is really sad. How do you feel about the some of the research that's been done on genetic markers for trauma, like for the children of Holocaust survivors and the grandchildren? You know, what's fascinating is I have this slide in my training where I pop up the slide that shows the brain changes in children of trauma, and it has a list on it of the things. And they say things like, the effects of early childhood trauma on developing brain, hyperactivity of the HBA access, abnormalities in neurotransmitter function include like particularly dopamine, structural abnormalities, reduced volume of hippocampus, these kinds of things. And then guess what? The evidence they use that schizophrenia is a brain disease, they say reduced um, hippocampal volume um, hyperactivity of HBA access, um, abnormalities in neurotransmitter activity, especially dopamine. The, the exact same things we see as markers in brain scans of people with trauma 
are what they say is evidence of schizophrenia being a brain problem. Did that answer your question, Tish? <laughs> yes, it's it's it sounds like you feel that that the the trauma in the genes is is much different. What was your question? I may have misunderstood. So there's there's a lot of research that I feel like we've talked about it on the show with maybe uh, one person, perhaps in regards to legacy burden, but how um, how there's research done mostly around the children of and the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors, where the trauma is passed down genetically. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. Okay, radio. Yeah, and. So how much of that is environmental? Right. You know, of course, I'm going to be, if we look at those brain scans I was just referring to, if I'm a child who grows up with a parent who's completely terrified because they've come out of the Holocaust <laughs> and then I'm a grandchild of that person, so I've grown up with a mother who's also grown up with someone who was terrified, I'm getting a lot of not feeling safe from in the womb, right? And so my brain is just exposed to the same types of um, really frightening, I don't feel safe in the world experiences as, you know, people who go through traumas in the, you know, like, I, I don't know, I work with a lot of people who initially say, I don't have any trauma. And then you listen to what's happened to them and their family. And, and it sounds like um, there's a lot of trauma from feeling unsafe because mum didn't feel safe or dad or you know if you're if you can't rely on your caregiver because they're just tapped out there's there's another really amazing quote from this guy that I can't remember um where it actually says one of the things that's really difficult is repeated that's the trauma right okay this is what they talk about in trauma which may not look like trauma it says something that can be traumatic is repeated interactions in a close loving relationship where a threat of punishment, either withdrawal of love or expression of anger, or most devastating, the kind of abandonment that results from the parent's expression of extreme helplessness. And that was actually part of Bateson's double bind theory for schizophrenia um, way back in (laughs) whenever that was. Um, So I think for me, if you are a child of parents or grandparents from the Holocaust, you are you're exposed to that the vibe of that level of knowing I'm a little child and my parent is feeling overwhelmed and powerless, yeah. and that's really traumatic. Yeah. So, Stephanie, can we really do parts work with this client or is it anytime not recommended or desirable to do it? Also, is it possible to do insight or should we mostly do implicit direct access? Oh, that's such a great question. There is no one answer to that, Annabelle. And um, I think there's a bunch of things that I want to say about that. One is it depends what stage you meet the person. If this is a first episode psychosis, um, once you get through what we call the startle phase and the person knows it's okay, there's meaning to be made in this experience and we don't have to be afraid of it and actually 
giving them the, the framework of their of parts is such a gift giving them these are parts and this is what we we can help to understand them and we don't have to be I get you're afraid I really get you're terribly afraid of this um but I'm not and I'm here and the, with, there's no rush but we can really get to know this experience right so that's in first episode psychosis and there's also a lot of meaning making stuff that can be done in the implicit direct access in that early early stage then as a person um, moves through that there's a lot more capacity to be doing more kind of classic IFS but what I would say too is if a person's been in the health service for 10 years they have um, compound trauma they have become so terrified of their experience because wherever they speak about it, everyone is terrified by it. So they don't then just have the initial difficulty that they were trying to navigate that the parts are making all this like really big experiences about. They now have extra parts who are frightened out of their brain about the paranoia or the delusions or the whatever. And that is going to take longer. And that's where I think you, when I love your term of these micro dosing in the therapeutic relationship. Um, but every person is different. And so, you know, I had this one client I'm, I was seeing and he was straight up for parts work, straight off, you know. Um, but some sessions, that was not on the cards because um, he had a part, a, a new part. He, I got to meet a new part that day who was really obstructive and there was not going to be any of whatever but one of the things I teach in my courses is that that is actually a beautiful moment because there is a part here who um, if we can calibrate to it, when this used to happen, I used to get really confused because I'd be like, whoa, what just happened? And, you know, um, what I'm used to doing is not working with this client and I know this client pretty well and this is out of the blue. But if I kind of can really because it's nonsense what's going on sometimes in that moment makes no sense to me at all and I can't figure what am I doing wrong that this person's having this big reaction to me and of course we call it psychotic at that moment right but there's meaning and so if I talk about this client that I was seeing um and I actually got sick last year and I had to discontinue um I took a year off because I was quite sick but um it ended up he had read something on my website that had frightened him about who he thought I was. And if I had had the wherewithal in that session to say to him, something's happening right now, let's bring that here, you know. I just kept trying to do parts work, which was my folly, right. Then I could have heard from him something that, you know, could have been deemed to be completely yeah, whatever label a psychiatrist might give it, but actually was a legitimate concern for that part and if I'd slowed down enough in that day to really attune so this is this works about attunement and you know I was talking to David Stern I don't know how many people know David Stern but he and I are looking at putting together a something for um the IFS conference on working with non-ordinary states and we were talking about the other day that you really have to turn up to this work with a little bit more of um bringing your own vulnerabilities as a therapist, more of your own 
willingness to be really always wondering I, what just happened that I did, even if it seems tiny, you know, because these, these paranoid parts or these frightened parts, they are, they are just like a, any trauma survivor, so attuned to every, there's meaning for the way I blink, you know, whether I take my shoes off in session or whether I put one foot on top of the other. Yes. So, Stephanie, do you believe schizophrenia is a new horizon to IFS? Is it a new horizon? Well, yes and no. So I want to say I think IFS is the best place modality ever for working with non-ordinary states, whatever that gets labelled, okay? And I think that's because it's so compassionate and it's so curious and you need to have curiosity. Um, you have, need to have curiosity for yourself in all the responses you have as the therapist in relation to the person. You have to have a lot of curiosity for the person. and So that's why I think it's absolutely the best place. Um, and also, no, <laughs> I want to say it's not a new horizon. This is the most ordinary work in the world and any of us can do it. <laughs> and um, it's such a shame that, For so long, people have been frightened by it. And um, can I tell you just a really sweet story that kind of illustrates this? Mm -hmm, please. I used to run a hearing voices group. And um, one day I was doing some work in the office because I wasn't going to attend that day. I just had a lot to catch up on. And the facilitator I normally co-facilitate with kind of came in to see me and said, you know, can you come out? Because... Ben's having a really hard day today and I'd gone out and Ben was really, really distressed and um, a bit loud, but he was, he was doing okay. And I looked around the group and no one was worried. One of the things I love about working in a voice hearing group is everyone else has sat in that same chair that Ben was sitting in that day, really distressed. So no one's worried because they know he's fine. It's only us healthcare professionals that worry. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Ben looks quite a bit like his mum and everyone in this particular place knew his mum and there was one woman who kept saying to him, you look like your, gosh, you just look like your mum. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe how much you look like your mum. And Ben's mum had really wounded him, so that was really hard. And he was having a hard day, so hearing that was like double whammy of hardness. And um, he started getting a little bit animated, you might call it, and he He was sort of saying to her, why are you asking me that? And saying things. And she she was just kept asking him. She was just wanting, you know, don't people always tell you you look like your mum? And at one stage he turned to her and he goes, are you the devil? Like this. And I just went, oh, this is, a, this is so clever, right? Of course his parts would think she's the devil. Why would anyone say he had a resemblance to this person who could be so wounding and horrid and mean to someone? He's kind and gentle and sweet, you know. So, of course, his parts would think that. And I, I suppose for me that is the beauty of the IFS work because in that moment I'm not seeing a crazy person. I am seeing a part with a legitimate concern that this person was, well, and he was frightened by that connotation, right, because there's probably parts in him who, is, is a, who are afraid he's like his mother. Yes. So um, 
the, the story is really to show you that it's about not being afraid. Yeah. I just sat in that group and Ben was fine and the whole group was fine. And it's so funny because the co-facilitator just relaxed when I got there, but I did absolutely nothing. And IFS can help us not get afraid. Yeah, that's right. Stephanie, where would you like to see your work and your wisdom go as as time rolls on? Well, this is so interesting because as I am so passionate about this, but it's actually really not my main baby. Um, I fell into this work and I have a passion for a bunch of other things as well. And I do have, um, I have a big ideas part. I have a part who always has big ideas. And so I have many, many big ideas or she has many big ideas. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I would like to train up a bunch of therapists who can do this. I actually don't think I'm that good at it. I think there's people who are way better than I am. And um, so for me, it's about really training uh, people to be less afraid, to just keep yeah. showing up in that place. Um, and then once that is really, you know, fairly well, I, I don't know, I'd like to see it established a little as, you know, ongoing, some ongoing trainings in IFS and, and non-ordinary states that somebody else runs. And that really, you know, when you think about where I want to go, my passion is to um, really train up therapists in, I want to say attunement. I don't know if that's the right word for it, but the being withness. I think that um, I've just had so many clients, so many therapists that my parts feel quite wounded by the experience of um, not enough being withness yeah. in the therapeutic world. So. Two years ago, I, I taught a year-long training in uh, psychotherapy, so I have parts who are kind of planning maybe that. I'm also going to be writing a book, hopefully, with Michelle Glass, you know, talking together about a, a book around nuanced approaches to IFS is what I'll call it for now. Stephanie, I understood you just start off at an introductory workshop to working with psychosis that you called com oh. Compassionate Approaches to Working with Psychosis. Do you want to tell us more about this workshop? Yeah, so it's just a four-week, um, a four, like a three-hour session, so it's 12 hours. Um, I'm starting the next round tomorrow, so that'll be, um, this will be, halfway through by the time this is put out it'll be you know well and truly on its way but I've got two more planned for the end of the year so it's just four three-hour sessions plus I show um a screening of the film Healing Voices because um people can and can and do recover from these experiences of being labeled with these things and it's really common everyday experience that someone can recover if they're given the right set of circumstances. Um, I think D even Dick Schwartz said in his plenary, um, the World Health Organization study shows better outcomes in the third world where we where we don't interfere and we have social supports yeah, than medication. So the film is really about a, a journey of following the story of people who recover 
and there's three main characters and um, so that's what that training is. How do our listeners get access to participating in your trainings? They can go to, the moment, I'm changing over my website, but for now, just go to stephaniemitchell.com.au. Stephanie, such a joy to talk to you. Thank you for sitting with us and focus on such a difficult topic. It was a joy to be here with you and teacher, and we hope you can keep meeting and sharing this model our work and our lives. Thank you. Thank you.